Titus chapter 3. We're going to take the time to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to take a couple verses as a text. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates to be ready to every good work. I think it's well to remark, and I don't often break into the reading, but it's well to remark that the command to obey magistrates was given to people who were living under tyranny. And uh, so Paul gave the instruction to Titus to command the people who profess to be believers that they would live in civil order. Continuing in verse 2, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen.
Amen. It is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Our text is verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father, we have come now to this central part of thy worship, the proclamation of thy word, the exposition of thy truth, Thou hast appointed a word for us on this day. Now we pray that thou wilt mightily empower it. We pray that it will reach every soul. We ask, O Lord, that thou will be pleased by thy grace to fill me with thy Spirit's power to the very uttermost for the proclamation of thy word and for the exaltation of thy Son. O hear our cry, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus, like Timothy, was part of Paul's legacy to the world. Wonderful to have such a legacy as those who preach the gospel. From the epistle that the inspired apostle wrote to Titus, we learn that the calling of Titus was to the people on the island of Crete. That's roughly in the center of the Mediterranean Sea. The epistle was a reminder and a warning to Titus about the nature of the people among whom he labored and his particular responsibilities in that ministry. Titus was to oversee the ordination of elders or presbyters in the churches of Crete. As a pioneer missionary, Titus had responsibilities that went beyond evangelism. He had to organize the new believers into effective local congregations. Titus and the elders he was to ordain in the name of the presbytery had the heavy responsibility of guarding the churches against the incursions of false doctrine. In fact, the epistle breathes the atmosphere of spiritual battle against the purveyors of heretical teaching. Titus and the elders whom he ordained to the leadership of the churches had to be on their guard. They had to instruct the believers in the impact of the gospel in all spheres of life. The epistle highlights two famous texts 
One of them we find in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul was there emphasizing, even in that period of time, that the hope of the people in the church was the coming of Jesus Christ. The other text that is famous in the epistle is the one we have as our text today, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. These famous words form a summation of the core of the gospel message. The challenge to keep the gospel message pure was as great during the first century as it is in the 21st century. The departures from sound doctrine of which the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus were part of the attack on the truth that salvation is not of works, that it is all of grace. The Apostle's emphasis was that there is no other way to heaven than the one that Christ opened through his sinless life and sacrificial death. This text, then, was the message that Paul sent Titus to Crete to proclaim. The circumstances of our time and place are much different than what Titus faced in first century Crete. The manner of dress is different. No doubt the diet is different. And the whole atmosphere is different. But the message of the gospel truth in this text has not changed. The reason that Paul directed Titus, as we have read in this chapter, to reject heretics was that Titus could not allow any attempt to subvert the core of Christianity. Paul's famous words in this text pointed the attention of Titus to heaven's solitary entrance. And I want to speak about that theme this morning, heaven's solitary entrance. To imagine the atmosphere of the island, and it's quite a large island actually, but the island where God called Titus to serve, As a teaching elder, we have to catch the hints that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include. If we turn back to chapter 1 and verse 12, we read Paul's reminder to Titus, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, that is somebody from Crete, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
slow bellies or literally lazy gluttons. Verse 13 said, This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. The people of Crete spent their time in carnal pursuits and took pleasure in that which was impure. So you can imagine that for Titus it was a challenging environment. Because the people to whom he preached claimed that they knew God. But as we read in verse 16 of chapter 1, in works they deny him. That is, their lives belied their claims. The burden of Titus as a minister of Christ was to exhort the professing believers of Crete to maintain good works, but not as assurances of their acceptance before God. The core of the message that Titus proclaimed in Crete was that it is the grace of God that brings salvation. And that salvation produced profound effects in the lives of Christians. Even so, Paul refused to countenance the idea that Christians had anything to do with their salvation. They had nothing to contribute to their salvation. The focus of our text in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, is that God alone is the force in salvation. Only as the believers on Crete caught the force of that gospel truth would they embrace the incentive to maintain good works. The theme of our text Heaven's solitary entrance features three distinct parts. And let us look at those parts today. First, the universal denial. The universal denial. The text opens with the unmistakable word, not. In the previous verse to our text, Paul wrote of the appearance of the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man. So lest the people of Crete conclude that therefore they were lovable and capable of that which would gain them entrance to heaven, Paul followed that statement with this universal negative. Not. The word not applies to every person on Crete and to every other person in the world. It applies to you and to me. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. There's an echo in that text of those famous words that some of you or maybe all of you can recite by heart from Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Meaning your faith 
is not a work. For the Jews, the works were those of the ceremonial law. They were the works of circumcision. The wearing of phylacteries and fringes on their garments. And for the Gentiles, they were the works of following the religion that is still in vogue today. Doing the best they could. And hoping those works would be sufficient. In the country of Greece, there is a place called Mount Athos, which is the home to a monastery, a rather large monastery for Orthodox, Greek Orthodox monks. More than a hundred monks live there all the time. And when you read their comments or listen to their comments, all of them talk about the sacrifices that they have made in order to live in this place. In order to deny themselves. As though such sacrifices would earn them entrance to heaven. It isn't so. The denial in our text is universal. No work can avail for salvation. But the text goes further. It means works of righteousness. So we're not here talking about just general charitable deeds. We're talking about works of righteousness. The people of Crete may have thought that their efforts to conform to the standard of God's moral law, even loosely, that those efforts were the secret to salvation. As long as we do as well as we can, after all, who's perfect? Then we can gain entrance to heaven. God will let us in. Paul's universal denial, though, was that not even the best human works were sufficient. And to underscore the point, his denial included the last cause, which we have done. So Paul is including himself here with Titus and with all the people of Crete. These works of righteousness that Paul described went beyond intentions. Paul spoke about works that he did and that others did. But he said whatever the motivation of those works was, they had no saving merit. The universal denial in our text is that no work of your hands qualifies you for salvation and entrance to heaven. Why do I make such a point about this denial? It is because somehow or other, the devil gets into our minds and turns us to thinking that we may be able to do something. Paul's exhortation to Titus was that he had to drive this universal denial home to the Christians. 
At no time, Titus was to tell them, are human works the foundation of comfort or of the assurance of salvation. Not even the appearance of a changed life can qualify you for salvation. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. So Paul meant to exclude all human efforts before conversion. But he also meant to exclude any works of righteousness after conversion. No basis exists for the comfort of the soul in works as the qualification for salvation. So no one can say, well, I think I've done pretty good this last while, and God must be happy with me, and I should be all right. It is the universal denial. Many Christians, and the the reason for the importance of this emphasis is that many Christians face the battle with the suggestion of the devil that they have not done enough to get their salvation or to keep their salvation. And the origin of that battle is the devil's perpetual war against the gospel truth that we find in this text. So come back again to this universal denial, not by works of righteousness which we have done. And then take comfort in the second part of the text, the irresistible decree. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Since the inspired apostle denied any part for works of righteousness in salvation, how can God save anybody? Well, we learn in our text of what I call the divine pattern or the divine template. How does God save us? Only according to his mercy. This part of the text asserts that divine pattern as well as the objective fact of God's salvation. He saved us. But let's look first at the pattern, the mercy of God. It's one of the Bible's dominant themes. The Old Testament word that translators understood to refer to mercy occurs nearly 250 times. And in 149 of those occurrences, the translation is mercy. Other translations that occur numerous times are loving kindness and goodness. The word in the Old Testament has the atmosphere of a covenant or a contract. And the sense is of the relationship into which God entered with those he gave to his only begotten Son from before the foundation of the world. Let us just look at a few references in the Old Testament to this mercy. 
First of all, Psalm 86. Psalm 86. Verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. There is the reference to his mercy. That loving kindness that covenant faithfulness. Let us turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 and verse 7. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. There the link is between mercy and redemption. And then let us turn to one of the minor prophets. The prophecy of Micah. In chapter 7. Verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee? that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. The pardoning of iniquity, the passing by of the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, is all linked to his mercy. So the pattern of which we speak that God established rests on mercy that transcends pity or compassion. That is, it rests on a sacred relationship. The New Testament word for which translators chose mercy appears to have a a broader context It refers to the desperate need of those on whom God bestows it, as, for example, in the Lord's parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the publican saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But this word also has the sense with it of a pattern or a template. Let us turn to 1 Peter Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy... According, there's the pattern, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's this pattern. It's according to his mercy. And so when Paul wrote to Titus here, he placed the idea of salvation in the framework of the sovereign purpose of God. 
According to His mercy, He saved us. According to His mercy. We needed that mercy. We understand the publican's prayer. We needed that mercy in the sense that we needed divine compassion. But Paul, as a devout reader of the Hebrew Bible, understood the Old Testament concept of covenant loyalty. That is that God is always merciful. And if you get nothing else out of it today, I hope you'll get this. God is always merciful toward those with whom he is in covenant. They may not be faithful to him, but he is always faithful to them. He is always merciful to them. Not only did Paul assert this pattern, or template as I call it, but also he stressed to Titus the objective truth of the gospel that Titus was called to preach. God our Savior, of whom we read in verse 4, saved us. It's a good biblical word. Saved us. He saved us. And it's in the tense that emphasizes he saved us at a point. He saved us. That is, it wasn't a process by which he saved us. He saved us. He saved us in the bonds of the covenant of grace and redemption. He saved us. So Paul's message to Titus was, here's what you tell to the people there. He saved us. He saved us not merely because he felt sorry for us, but because of his eternal decree, that irresistible decree that rests on mercy and finds its expression in the reality of all that comprises salvation. You know, the sad aspect of gospel preaching on so many fronts in our time, is that God, our Savior, appears often in the popular mind as a poor individual who waits for us to want him to save us. A common expression of that attitude is that God wants to do so much, but we will not let him. Such thinking is not the force of our text. God saved us. God our Savior saved us. This decree of God our Savior appeared in the manifestation of His kindness and His love for sinners. The decree of our God of God our Savior, is irresistible in the work of salvation. So if you are among those whom God our Savior has saved, you are among those because you became the object of His irresistible decree that rests on His covenant mercy. So where's the room for your works of righteousness then? Paul asks. It's non-existent. 
The response to the universal denial that Paul gives at the outset of the text is this irresistible decree of mercy that issues in salvation. But exactly how does that salvation manifest itself? Well, that answer is in the third part of our text, the miraculous deliverance. The miraculous deliverance. Here in the last part of our text, beginning in the last part of verse 5, and through verse 6, is the inspired apostle's summary of the miracle that is salvation. God our Savior saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Some commentators, notably John Calvin and Matthew Henry among them, see a reference here to water baptism. That is, they make the argument that the water of baptism is the outward sign, the sacramental emblem of the inward work of the Holy Ghost. And I can see their argument to an extent. I'm not convinced that that was what Paul had in mind. Because what we can assert is that Paul was stressing here the gospel requirement of regeneration. The renewing of the Holy Ghost is that of which the Lord Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Let us turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him that is unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That was the Lord's word to Nicodemus. You have to be regenerated. You have to be born from above. Paul wrote of this life-changing miracle that took place in the members of the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is, not all of the members of the church in Corinth had been involved in all those activities, but some had. But was Paul saying they had been washed? They had been born again. We notice this emphasis on washing also in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. This renewing of the Holy Ghost of which our text speaks is the miracle of the new birth. It is the birth from above. Salvation is the result of regeneration. Or we may say more closely, conversion is the result of regeneration. And regeneration is the sovereign activity of the Holy Spirit. In that passage in John 3, if we had read on, we would have heard Jesus saying, the wind blows where it lists. And you cannot mark the source or the operation of the wind, but you can observe its effects. So it is, Jesus said, with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Paul's conclusion in this text, as we find it in verse 6, is that every aspect of this salvation, not only the regeneration of which we have been speaking, but everything else as well, every aspect of it is through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has shed on us in abundance this salvation. The person whom God has regenerated lives in the miracle of deliverance from the corruption of sin and of the wrath of God against sin. So Paul's message to Titus was to deliver this message to the Cretans that a person who has been born again cannot be as before. That person will be careful. As we read in verse 8, to maintain good works, not as the attempt to prove to others the reality of salvation. There are a lot of people who go around doing good things so that they can 
gain some credence in the eyes of others that they're actually saved. That is not what Paul was talking about. Regeneration, Paul's point is, accomplished a dramatic change in the heart. So that these famous works in our text underscore the truth that the gospel message is not any different now than it was then. There is only one entrance to heaven. Only one entrance to heaven. And it is only through faith in God our Savior. He has saved us. What a wonderful thing to have that testimony. He saved us. He saved me. You have that testimony. There's no power in earth or in hell that can shake you out of that solitary entrance to heaven. If you are not a believer in Christ, then here's the message of the gospel to you today. You will never accomplish your entrance to heaven on the basis of any works you do. It is only by the mercy of God that you come to salvation. May the Lord then call you to that salvation today. And if you are a believer in Christ today, a believer in God today, as we've read, then you have the assurance that God has opened heaven to you. And there is every reason for you to live in the light of that confidence in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank Thee today for Thy holy word. We rejoice, O Lord, in the assurance that salvation is all of Thy grace. O Lord, forgive us for ever thinking we can add anything to it. We come as humble suppliants today to thank Thee that according to Thy mercy Thou didst save us. We pray for any who know not Christ that this word may find their hearts today and bring them to faith in God our Savior. O Lord, write the word of God upon every soul today, we ask. And may there be fruit for its proclamation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.